Christopher Ashley, Michael Mayer, and Jerry Mitchell sat down for a group interview with moderators Charles Rappelé and Joe Melosha in fall of 2001. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. This is Michael Mayer over here. This is Jerry Mitchell. And this is Chris Ashley. Uh, first, simple, big question. What do you like about directing slash choreographing comedy? Is there a fray? I know the, the universal, it's very universal. Big question. Any, uh, what I like about it is, this is Michael. Michael. <laughs> what I have found that I think is the coolest thing, maybe, is that, um, that eliciting laughter from the audience unifies the audience in a really profound way. It's like they're breathing together, sort of, because laughter is so much about breath. And I always feel like whenever I'm doing whatever show it is, right. even if it's something serious, like a view from the bridge or something, whenever there's a laugh, it somehow brings the audience all together. You create instant community in that way. And I think that it's great. I love that. And it always feels like such a tonic, you know, when you can get that sort of unified response. Can you feel that while you when you while you're directing? While you're let's say you're in the rehearsal studio. Do you have a sense of that? I'm not talking about the other actors. No, no, no. Sometimes. Sometimes you go, oh, I know. That's where, that's where it's no, going. You know, you guys. Are, yeah. You know, you know something is going to be funny, even if it isn't in the room and no one gets it. But the best stuff is when you have no idea it's funny. Like, do you remember uh -huh. when we were doing our run through of Charlie Brown? <laughs> Not even a run through. We were just doing a few songs, and it was that scene, the, the, the right, last, the last scene. Pajamas, and they go, and they were, <laughs> they're looking at the stars, yeah. and they go. And, and one of them wanders Linus, away. Linus yeah, wanders goes, away. They said, where are you going? They said, they're, they can't tell if it's a satellite or a star. They're all Linus standing in the middle of the stage. Very serious. And he walks downstage, and he says, where are you going? He says, to get a closer look. <laughs> and uh, everyone laughed, but we had no idea. We didn't, oh, you we didn't, didn't know that was you didn't know that. Nobody laughed, yeah. nobody did anything. We didn't the know it was like funny. Whoa. And we thought, ooh. From the day it's... one, from the first day that, that it happened in front of an audience? Yeah, and it's always, it's always got a solid. Every night, it was an absolute surefire laugh. Where are you going? But you it was a better sort of, look. And one of the reasons... But it was funny also because... Dee Dee Wong, who was playing Linus, was playing it absolutely for real. And, well, that, and I was directing it that way because I thought it was supposed to be this incredibly sensitive, you know, deep, you know, this profoundly moving little scene at the end of the play. I didn't know there was a laugh there, so it was, it was surprising. And I don't think we would have gotten it if we'd known it was a laugh. It's the sort of thing if we'd known and we tried to yuck it up, we'd have killed the moment. Yeah. So... <laughs> I love being in the room when people are laughing. I love working on comedy, anything. And when I'm choreographing, I love trying to find a place where the audience can laugh. Like I knew in the basketball number in Full Monty that if somebody with an imaginary basketball dribbled the basketball into their balls, the audience would laugh. Right, right, but right. I wasn't, and, you can, and then and I, I looked at that. the six guys, and I, and I worked with the six guys for like two days, and I said, Who's going to really make us laugh when the ball hits their balls? 
And I think Jason Daniele because he made me laugh. He made me laugh all the time. So, so I just knew that that would get a laugh. But, but I like I enjoy going to work and knowing that I'm going to laugh. But the funny thing about doing, uh, doing a show like The Full Monty was, you know, in the room, the script was very funny the first time we read it, and the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time, and by the sixth week, it was kind of like we weren't laughing anymore. Right. So right. you don't know for sure if the audience is going to laugh. But I enjoyed, I enjoyed trying to find places in choreography where you can see that humor side of people. That's fun. Do you do that? In, do you do it at home? Do you do that? I put on a good record and I go to town. <laughs> but in your in your uh, you know uh, pre-production, uh, going into you're going into rehearsal that, that, that day, do you have, have, do you do pre-production in terms of this is going to be funny or do you does it all the difference between you doing it and the actor doing it or the combination of well, the difference between like Rocky Horror and Full Monty, I mean, the Full Monty, I knew that those guys were going to be fun. And when I auditioned the guys, I was specifically looking for guys who couldn't dance. If they could dance, I didn't want them in the show because I knew that the humor would be in watching guys who can't dance try to dance. And you know, a good dancer can pretend, but it's not the same as somebody who's really trying to dance. And I can get. I knew I could get them to the point where I needed them to look like they were dancing by the end of the show. But like for instance, when Reg strips at the audition, that was um, that was you know him coming in, uh, the actor uh, Todd Weeks coming in, who is not a dancer. And he, I made each of the guys strip for me one at a time at their audition at their final callback. Right. One right. at a time, I made them strip. For me. And I watched these guys strip, and I played, what song do you want? Let the piano player play it. And I made them, I said, strip, you're at a club strip. And I made them strip for me one at a time. And when that guy took his clothes <laughs> off Todd Weeks at his audition, I was laughing so hard just at what he was naturally doing that I knew that that was going to be a gold mine to cash in on that actor's, what he thinks is a strip routine in a dance, make it into a dance. Mm -hmm. Now it's choreographed. There's eight of these, right, eight right, of these, right, right, right. eight of these, eight of these, boot, fall. But, and it'll be done like that in the tour, and it'll be done like that in the Nike company, but he, the actor, brought that to, the, to me, and as a choreographer, I grabbed it and said, okay, this is going to be fun. So, you know. Uh, this is Chris. Chris. Uh, <laughs> I, I love how tangible the audience response is in comedy. It's, it's right, similar related to what Michael you were saying. Said, right? it, it, it's like immediate gratification for a director. I mean, you're, you're, you're doing a serious play. There always is a sense of you're trying to figure out where the audience is with you and where they're not. And comedy is like they laughed or they didn't. And it's like immediate report card in a way I love. Yeah. I love watching an author's face during, during uh, when a joke really works. In that way, that like there's nothing more tense than an author watching the early previews of their own work, and when a laugh releases, that look on authors' faces, like they like me, you get to tell it's a belly feel, flowing out of them. I love. Um, I got, I, I feel like as a director, really needed in comedy, and I sometimes think in more serious work, part of your job is to set up the framework so that the work can happen, and then to get out of the actor's way. And their comedy is so dependent on. Is the audience looking at the right person at the right time? Is, is, is the right person moving? Is the setup clear? And there's there's so many things 
for a comic moment that only a director can do. Rhythm. Rhythm. Um, really, that's true. And and you're so needed to make that moment happen. Um, somebody once described uh, the perfect director of a comedy as a two-year-old. They'd be like, ah, do it again. <laughs> and and you, the way that you are the audience is surrogate. To, and what Jerry was saying, that the way that the first read-through is really funny, and then it gets less and less funny every day of rehearsal. And it's never going to be funny again until you bring the first audience in. And the way that your job as a director is partly to find it funny. You know, your job is to be the audience surrogate and go like, I like that, that's funny, and to keep on staying open to what the actors are doing. And they have to have it, because otherwise there's nothing more depressing than rehearsing a comedy with nobody <laughs> appreciating. What about laughter in, in the room? You said, I, I love to go and I love to be laughing in, in, in well, rehearsal. I mean, you'll, you, hear, you'll hear this from Jack O'Brien, but he will tell you that he would rehearse with Jerry Lewis. And his job, he told he told me this story, you asked him, that his job was to laugh at everything he did. No matter what he did, you had to laugh. Because it kept Jerry open to keep doing it. And, and you know, that's hard because they're expecting to hear it when they get that seasoned and that good. But, um, but I just enjoy going in the room and trying to find ways. Choreography doesn't necessarily, isn't always funny and doesn't, necessarily lend itself to being funny all the time. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot of that from Robin, you know, but I think also, like you guys know, it's it's having a good actor to begin with. Mm -hmm. If you have a good actor who's doing a dance, anything's possible. But if you have a dancer who can't act, then you're sunk. You know, it's true. I, and there is, there's something about comedy that is just in it. I mean, there, no matter how much and how wonderful a director or character you are, there is something in that person that is funny or isn't. Yeah. And you can help them. You can make a person who's not so funny funnier. You can take away a person, a really funny person's opportunity to be funny. But you cannot make a person who isn't funny into a funny. Now, do you, that was, that's one of our, obviously, main, one of our main questions. So, no, your answer is, can you make somebody funny? You can help, but you can't. Like it, there's, it's like an on-off switch. Like the person has it has comedy for this material, and I think it, it also matters how you suit them to material. Right. Um, there's somebody who's mm -hmm. profoundly not funny who can deadpan their way through a really funny, like a scene that's set up perfectly. Right. They don't have to have comic timing. But there's people who, no matter what you you do with them, they're going to be funny. Like funny, who, bone. funny bone. Funny bone. Funny bone. Is that what you said? Funny bone. Yeah. I mean, I didn't do. I, I mean, I went. I, re I recently saw uh, um, Music Man. Kevin Bowe, the actor in the uh, the train scene, you know, when they're on mm. the train and he's doing all that physical stuff and he's doing the line front and back. I was in stitches laughing at him. I was just in stitches. That's a physical kind of choreography kind of humor. But that guy's got that. You know, you got to have that. I'm sure that Stroh took what he had in cashed in on it because he had it, you know. Michael? Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's true. I think you can also, though, if you cast something right, you can cast someone who isn't necessarily funny. If it's in the right, even if it could be a comic role in a play that um, with, where with their, you know, their, their calling card isn't about being a comic actress. I just remember so strongly I mean, you just don't, Randy Danson, for instance, you don't think of as a comedian, 
you know, she's, you don't think of her as a comic. I don't. I didn't anyway. And I cast her in a play a few years ago, um, in a Marivaux play, and she was absolutely hilarious. Everything she did was hilarious, and it was because she was so right for the role. And it was a com. It's an all-out comedy. There's, you know, there's something uh, touching about the play, but it's it's funny. And she was really genuinely funny. So I think I think it's a it's both. I mean, it's it's sort of yeah. dead on. If it's dead on casting or surprising casting in a way, then you can also create so maybe this comedy where it might not ordinarily live innately. Maybe in just person. the juxtaposition of the casting against the character. Well, I think comedy also a lot of of what an audience finds funny. I think two things generally make an audience laugh. Recognition, when they recognize something that they've experienced in their lives, and there's that laughter of recognition. Oh, I know what that feels like. And there's, there's something about that. And also, surprise. It's like the idea, I mean, I unfortunately haven't seen it usually. But when I see this, I mean, getting hits the ball, about it, it's very funny <laughs> that they're playing with an imaginary ball. And I remember when we were doing Sideman, and we were in rehearsal, we were rehearsing the scene when the guys are at the booth, they're passing a joint back and forth. And this was just in rehearsal, but it's the same sort of thing. And Frank Wood, we, we, I said, okay, stop, let's go back. And he took the imaginary joint and handed it back to Joe Taylor, who had the joint at the beginning. And I just thought that would be a great scene in a, in a play about making a play or something. But it's, that, it's the element of surprise that also, I think, is so... Uh, great, and it just takes you off guard. It's not what you expect. So that can also, I mean, that's up to the director as well, but it's also in the writing. You know, everyone mm. collaborates to find those moments where you just spin something. Well, and I think, if I could just jump interrupt, I think what you said, Michael, also feeds in perfectly to what Jerry was talking about, about the Fulmonte, and that is the setup for the basketball number is so important understandable and natural and familiar. Here, the guys are trying to dance, and they can't because the teacher is using a lingo that they don't get. Language they don't understand. They don't understand, and as soon as they say, as soon as it, they understand it's like a basketball game, and watching the metamorphosis I would, in the steps move from literal basketball moves to a dance piece that has the same kind of moves, is what helps make it funny so that when the ball does hit him in the balls, it's the release. When I was explaining to the guys their take on the language, I said to him, I said, okay, everybody just listen to this. And I'm going to go, and I said, Tom Bay, how to break, we saw that play. And I said, okay, go. <laughs> and they all looked at me like I was speaking the French, which I was. And I said, no, you understand, that's the language. For a dancer, if I had a room full of dancers right now, and I said, Tom, I wouldn't have to do anything, and they'd all go, and I said, the same thing. He goes, oh, you know the Michael Jordan move, fake, spin, jump, shoot, and they all go, like, and it's like suddenly they're all speaking the same language, and it makes sense, and that's funny, because, because it's all the same language. Right. And it, it also plays on what Michael was just saying about the unexpected. Yeah. Before they get to the Michael Jordan movie, you're wondering, how, how are they going to get right. this? Yeah. And then it's like the Michael Jordan You didn't expect that. You didn't see that coming, and then it clicks, and it's funny. And then, of course, you just keep up in the ante, 
would be unexpected until you get to the ball thing. That's unexpected. Repetition, too, is really mm -hmm. important. I just remember um, Noises Off, which was maybe the funniest thing I had ever seen. I just remember you know, Deborah Rush, you know, <laughs> just terrific, you know, lying on the, the stairs, looking for her contact lens, the sardines. I mean, you know, if, if you ha these things get hammered in enough and then you put a twist on them at the end, it's just, it's sure fire. But what about that? Can, does that go back to what you were saying before? Can just anybody repeat like that? Can you teach that? Can you direct that? Well, physical is... And physical I really parts, physical parts could be no. different than yeah. could be different than yeah. spoken. Like, physical could be different. Because, yeah. like yeah. for instance, Roman's character in Roman Fruget's character in the Full Monty, is, he comes in, Ethan Gerard, and he's gonna he wants to be like Donald Connor, and he wants to do the flip off the wall. Well, that came out of purely out of Roman's inability to do it. But I said he shouldn't be able to do it, and we were in a rehearsal room, which was you know just a regular rehearsal room, and I said just go run at that wall and just hit it and fall on the floor. I said, I don't care how you hit it, just think you're gonna do it, run at that wall, full intention of flipping, and when you hit the wall, bounce off of it and land on the floor. And it was like throwing a tomato at the wall and watching it go flat, bleh. And it was, I mean, we peed ourselves laughing at him. But anybody's <laughs> gonna be able to do that, because that is a dead hand physical joke. I mean, all you have to do is have the commitment. Mm -hmm. There's the wall. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to do. That's I see it. I go for it. I fail. That's funny. I also think it's a lot easier to replace a not as funny actor in than to create a role that's not very funny actor. Because yeah. the production that's starts to create a format mm -hmm. or like it's the jokes get become built in to the yeah. business, to the yeah. choices, to the timing of the whole thing, to who's looking at, at who when. And if you have a not very funny actor that you're building it on, it's probably going to be a less funny scene. You think you originally, could, originally, 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 the first time right. you're doing yeah. production. Well, then you're you're, all, you're putting them almost into a choreographed comic scene. Right. Yeah. Well, we're sort of we're sort of finding that right now with the auditions for the first tour of the Full Monty. Right. Because it's very difficult to find those those six guys, everyone in the cast. But there was something unbelievable about that first group of people and the way they related with each other and found their way through the piece with Jack Skyden. And and uh, now you're looking at people and you're going, oh boy. But what you're, what's surprising is how well, like you said, it holds up with someone knowing that, knowing what it has already been, that you're able to achieve it with the second group back. I thought that's what you were saying about Randy Banton. I think there's something sort of thrilling about taking a actor who hasn't done a lot of comic material and releasing their comic instincts. And it's it's both thrilling and it feels sort of dirty. Because there's a sort of like, like comedy lower, so it's sort of like like take your clothes off, baby. Right. You know, like there's there's something that feels a little pimpish about it. You uh -huh. guys do both. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, is, but what about is it dangerous? Is there what is the danger in If you or could, can you or maybe the two questions. What is the danger in that? And can you see? Do you believe you can see that somebody is genuinely funny at it? Okay, first question is in a danger. I do think that like somebody who's not really skilled at comedy ahead of time, a lot comes into the, how much they trust the director. Mm -hmm. Because until you get in front of an audience, it feels scary because it feels like you're doing bad acting. 
because it's you know usually for those people not organic. They can't just feel the timing coming out of it, and they really have to trust the director is gonna protect them. And the audience, in a way, you know, actors and they can be genius actors in in more serious works that they don't need to have that rapport with the audience. It's not essential in the way that it is with comedy. It's so much about the audience is that other scene partner that you've been waiting for the whole rehearsal time. And as, as great as and generous as we might be as directors and choreographers and the stage managers, right, everyone and the fellow cast members laughing at the stuff, what you say is right. By the, by the fifth week, you're like, it, it, you go, ah, ah, it's just less, you know, hearty and truthful. But you're, you know it's going to be funny. And so when they get out there and they find what that thing is, I think that is... That's the other piece of the sort of a more dramatic actor. But what was the second part you asked? You said when you when at an audition, you're sitting at an audition, you don't know the person. You, so you're a brand new person to you. Can you tell? I mean, like, you know, we think of Faith or, or Kristen or or those people that can. But what if what if it's not uh, that out, uh, that uh, clear when they walk in? Can you? Do you they think probably when they leave, the you know? <laughs> the what? They probably don't get the job. Um, when they come into audition, I mean, the truth is, is that you're hoping that they'll walk in and they'll wow you. Anybody coming into audition. Uh, perfect case in point. We searched a long time for the part of Jeanette. And we had some really good, funny actresses, big working New York actresses play that part in several readings. And we still didn't have the real Jeanette. We didn't have the real McCoy. And we were in San Diego in rehearsal. We were in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I forget the name. Jack will be able to tell you who the woman was. Because she auditioned for Jack and she worked for Jack. And she said, Jack, you want Kathleen Freeman for this part. And he said, who's Kathleen Freeman? And he, or we said, Kathleen Freeman sounds familiar. Kathleen Freeman. Oh, <laughs> Kathleen Freeman. That's very good. That'll be an edit for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's just no, no, no. no. <laughs> great minds all doing the same thing. I'm, I'm a youngster. Who's Kathleen Freeman? Well, of course, we all know who Kathleen Freeman is from every Jerry Lewis movie. As soon as you see her, you go, oh. But here's the reality. Kathleen Freeman drives herself from L.A. all the way down to San Diego. She comes into the room, and she didn't even have to open her mouth. She walked in the room, she said, hi, and we all went. We knew who she was, but go watch that woman. Talk about comic timing. Talk about the ability to deliver night after night, show after show, beat after beat. She doesn't, she, it doesn't matter what's happening. She knows. She knows comedy like it's just in her. It's part of the way she, it's part of her being, you know. And she walked in, and you just went, "This is comedy. This is the real deadpan. Send that line out there and wait for them to laugh because they're gonna." She knows how to deliver it, and that is, you know, when they, when they walk in the room, it's like she said, "You work for days. They're all dogs." And then walk Barbara Streisand. It's true. Some of it, I think, too, in an audition circumstance is different writers have like like there's how their sense of humor on the page 
resonates with what the actor sense of humor does. Uh-huh. And there's people who, who you've seen be funny so many times, and you see them walk in the door, and those words in their mouth, that character isn't funny on them because it doesn't match. It mm-hmm. doesn't, like, it doesn't chime. And, and for me, that's a lot of like what the audition process is seeing. Is that writing sense of humor in that person? Right. Regardless of whether they could be a funny person. That's a good one. Writing sense of humor. But the other thing uh, along with that is that the difference of working on something that's already been written, a revival or a play that's existed, and working on a new project, and having the honor <laughs> to work with Terrence McNally and watch him take in preview every line that didn't land or every joke that he thought was funny or we thought was funny or somebody thought was funny and watching him constantly. I mean, Terrence was, I learned so much from Terrence on the show because he was at it every minute. He did not let up. He continued and continued and continued to rework it, rewrite it, redo it. Line up, I mean, until it was where he wanted it. And it was amazing to watch that process. Really amazing. What about that? It was just sort of the, the difference between a new project or a project that's in development and growth and a, a piece that's already been done and you're redoing it, perhaps a new version of it and not. What about, what are some of the differences? Anything that, like that jumped out at you? What else is, what is different about those two? But when you're doing a revival, um, it's, everyone sort of knows what's expected from the character or from the situation. You've got a whole series of expectations. It's like when you know you go to the Met and you see you're going to see Otello again. You've got your whole series of expectations or Figaro or whatever you know you know, and so the whole the fun of it is to see what are they going to do this time that's either different or oh I can't wait for my favorite moment mm-hmm. to happen. Um, so that has its own challenges, and it is how are you going to spin something? How are you going to deliver the thing that you know you have to deliver? Um, Blah, 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 or, right. or stuff that's like the mo- a movie, like uh, Full Monty or Thoroughly Modern Millie, which I'm working mm-hmm. on. How are we going to give them what they're expecting from the movie and yet spin the new stuff? But I think one of the cool things, and it goes with what you were saying about Terrence, is to watch how the great, really great comic actors can inspire the writer mm-hmm. on a new Well, class. that's, that's, so, that's so it's it's not just... I mean, it includes seeing what stuff doesn't work, but that's already late in the game, in a way. But when it's like when we were working on Sideman, Warren Light, who's a very funny writer, um, would be, I would watch him um, when, when we would have a, a new actor come into the process, because it was a long process before we came to New York with that play, but each time there was some new actor that would inspire him differently, and so the roles all became written sort of on these people. So he started to write to their strength. That's what you were saying earlier too, Chris, is that it, at, in the same way that the director can start to sort of orchestrate things to play to the comic strengths of, of the cast, um, the writer can also do that as well. And so you start throwing extra little things this way because you know that's really... We did that with Kristen. Um, that was that was oh creating God. that role of mm-hmm. Sally for her and Charlie Brown was so much fun for me because I knew who I was making it for. If I hadn't cast Kristen, that role might have been Frida. It might have been Peppermint Patty. It might have been Marcy. I, it was Sally because 
there was Kristen. In my head, she was Sally. And so I went through all the material to find stuff that would really just, she would nail. And I had the opportunity to do that because that part didn't exist before. That was a weird combination of both. It's mm-hmm. like we had to somehow get Queen Lucy to sort of land in the way people were expecting it to, and yet by the same token, to deliver completely fresh new material that people weren't expecting. So it was it. So. What about well, sense of In my experience, a lot of the really amazing comic writers are the most open and ruthless with their own work. Mm-hmm. Ruthless. Good. That they'll, they'll, Paul Rednick. Not only can he come in with 50 new pages a day, but also, like, I put myself a lot more in, their, in my relationship with him where he'll say, like, let's just lose that scene. Let's lose that act. Let me, let me rewrite it. And, and, like, where you actually have to go, no, I can You're make that right. work. <laughs> Don't cut that yet. And that's so much the opposite for my experience with most writers of more serious material where I'm generally the one who's pushing, mm, I've got to go deeper. And most of the, particularly Paul Rednick, but a lot of comic writers, and what you were saying about uh, Terrence, there's, I think that somehow writing comedy encourages you to be a little less dear with the material and to really get it all the way. You have to keep going. You have to keep refining. You have to be willing to throw out. You have to be willing to reconsider all the time, every page, every sentence. Can I, can I jump in? Can I uh-huh. ask a question before we get off the subject? In regard to assuming we might be the two questions you're going to ask. I'm well, sorry. you can ask. How's that? One of them is specifically for Jerry and Chris, and one of them is for all three of you guys, and I'll ask them both in you. Regarding the new material versus familiar material, so I wanted to ask you guys specifically about Rocky Horror, specifically about redoing Time War, and just in general about this movie that is so familiar, how do you rethink that versus a new thing that no one's seen before and, and expectations are not there? And the second question goes to what touched on, I, don't want, I thought it was interesting, and I don't want to lose it sight of entirely, and that is, how much do you think, how important do you think it is for the director and the choreographer to have the same sense of humor? What if they don't? Like you, you guys talked about that in terms of actors versus let's, players. Let's word that in a little bit. You said the, the actor is suited for the, in the comic bent of the actor might be suited for the material, this material better than that material, mm-hmm. better than this material. What about, now here's two directors, one choreographer, what about sense of humor between, between the, in the collaborative team? The well, collaborative let me talk team. first. You get to talk first. <laughs> this is Jerry the choreographer. He's um, in the middle. They can either agree with me or not agree with me. But, you know, I, I learned from some great directors, choreographers, and I still believe, and certainly the seat that I sit in, that they're the ones who are in charge of the show, and my job is to try and go at it from their point of view. It doesn't mean that I'm not a collaborator, and it doesn't mean that I'm right on the same page with them, but really, I'm so in... I think great musicals are made by having one guy drive the ship, and that is the way I've been raised. It's sort of the way I was taught from Jerome Robbins and Michael Bennett. So, and Bob Avian, and Ron Field, and the list goes on and on. So, uh, I think that's the choreographer's job. The choreographer's job is to bring everything he can bring to the show, but to know that 
it's the director's job to direct the show and your job to choreograph it and help the director in any way and try and see the direction in which the director is taking the vehicle. And that's sort of how I approach both jobs with these guys. The other thing that I think is kind of uh, interesting, I wanted to talk about the familiar thing. The familiar versus the unfamiliar when you walk into a room, because you said something about it. It just brings up a point, and I'll, t I'll talk about time work too, but this is in Full Monty, was, you know, everybody who saw the Full Monty remembers the hot stuff. Mm -hmm. Hot stuff, baby, in the unemployment line. And when we were in the room working with Jack and Terrence and David, and I said, you guys, we can't do that. We can't do that in the show. We'll never do it as well as they did it in the movie. They're in that scene for 30 seconds in the film. You get, you're able to go, cut, cut, you're out of it. And it's a huge laugh. And I said, you can't do that on stage. It takes a minute, 30 seconds just to get the scenery up. You know, so <laughs> how do you do that? I said, we have to find another place in the show to deliver that beat. Because the audience is going <laughs> to want that beat. But we have to find our own place to deliver it. And we did. We found it in the graveyard. Don't tell me. But we found it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we found it. That's there. there. Oh, well. it's there. That's so difficult, what you just said. It's it so hard. To it. And you know what? i got to tell you something. All of these movies that are being adapted to stage, anybody who's <laughs> going to do a movie that's going to be on stage, go do a movie before you, do, before you bring mm. it on stage. Because it'll teach you everything that you can't bring to the stage from a film. Because they do not... A te camera tells everybody in that theater where to look, and the director and choreographer's job is to tell everybody in the theater where to look, and you have to make the head turn. You can't mm -hmm. just point the camera. And it's two different worlds. I, I want to respond to the first thing that Jerry said, which he was talking about how a choreographer listens to a director. I think working with a choreographer is the single most terrifying thing that I've ever done. <laughs> and I do, because you have, to give, you have to give up so much control and say, we have X amount of time. There's going to be two rooms. The choreographer is going to do half of the show. They're just going to stage half of it. And really giving up that control, there's such a trust issue. And I, I would say I, I feel like I gave Jerry more control than anybody. You and did. some of it is because Jerry really does both have great ideas, in my opinion, but also really listens. And what he offers and what he accepts creates a lot of trust. And it does, I think, matter with the director and the choreographer on the same page. And you can watch productions on stage just as an audience member and watch the two departments and colliding. We spent, and we spent two weeks in a studio before we saw our actors in a room, the two of us with, I think, Angie and four dancers sometimes. A couple of dancers coming in. Just We did the whole show. He'd play the part, I'd play the part. He'd get up and go, do Eddie, and I'd see what he was thinking, and I'd say, okay, I can stage that. I know what you're saying on the mini stage. I can do you know, those kind of steps around Eddie, and we'll move over to that platform. So we worked in that way that we spent that time together, and it's the dating thing. <laughs> and a sense of humor. I think we have completely different senses of humor. I think yeah. he's, he's totally... Uh, you know, you're smart. I'm not smart. I'm I'm totally from a physical world. This is Chris. You're That's from wrong. A, you're from a <laughs> you're from a page world. You know what I mean? His his humor is text and, and story and, and that stuff. And mine is totally about physical. That's the only world I know really. 
So I'm getting into the page and text stuff. But really, my my you know, I've always been I've always spoke with my body. That's sort of how I speak, not with words. So it was a night nice, it's nice you don't have to have the same kind of humor. It's actually generous if you don't because you give and take more. And we did the same thing. We didn't have we didn't have as much pre-production no, time because it happened like that. It was fast. You thought this happened fast. We had a lot of out of town. That happened like that. We had a lot of time. We had a lot of time out of town. We wrote songs together with we Andrew did. in a room. Michael, you were nodding. So, so well, I, I was going to say what I, I think give that take. I think it's great not to have the same sense of humor because I think what's so exciting is you know the collision of sensibilities yeah. that happen. And you, you challenge each other in different ways. And so I, I loved the fact that Jerry and I would come at moments from different perspectives and then find commonality there. And we did, I think, very successfully. I felt like um, you couldn't tell where the scenes ended and the choreography you began. It was, be, and you it shouldn't was wonderfully be able to. seamless that way. I don't think you could. I don't think you can in ours. Right. I don't think you get in the full monster. I think it's really important and that it doesn't feel like, okay, now the book scene stops and the number happens. In the same way that you don't really, it, it's with all the elements of the production. You, you want everything, you want the, the visual and the movement, all of it, and the sound of it. You want it all to sort of feel you know, organically connected. Right? I mean, I remember, I literally remember being in where were we? Wilmington, Chicago. Chicago. Oh, Skokie. No. Skokie, Illinois. <laughs> Knowing that we needed another number. Yeah. Andrew had written that fabulous number for Kristen Chenoweth. Right. And we wanted another number like that. We wanted more numbers like that. Yeah. But I remember being downstairs in the orchestra room That's right. with Andrew yeah. trying to figure out a number for, for Stanley for Beethoven's yeah. Day, which was the birthday. And right. trying to make another number because the show needed more. It needed more numbers. Yeah. And then Andrew took the whole opening, which was very like the original, yeah. and then he rescored it with more of a hip section right. in that section that came out of it. Right. It was great because we just kept going at it. But a lot of that stop. work was done out of town. So that was our pre-production. That was our pre-production. was actually in the middle of it. Uh, well, we didn't have that time to write it or to rewrite it. Or so actually, stuff. our you know our collaboration sort of. I remember it. one joke. Yeah. What was the one in the very beginning? The very beginning, when there she was coloring on the thing and Linus came okay. in. What was that one? We liked that. We, we liked it in rehearsal. It. Nobody <laughs> laughed. Yeah, it was from Linus. <laughs> Nobody. No, there were a few of those that were just dogs. So we had to cut, and we kept the couple in out of perverse. Like, it was completely psychotic of us. Just, remember, we kept that. Uh -huh. There were a couple like sugar lips. They're going to laugh. Nobody called them sugar lips. There was a Snoopy thing that we kept in, and Raj Parvin would come up to us and just go, "Please, I'm not funny." I love the concept of rehearsal laughter because there is a thing that, like, in, in retrospect, you think you yeah. must have been high. Yeah. Where it's like right. something in that room where it's right. like on that person because you know who the person is and you know what their capabilities are, but they, it'll strike you as so funny. And then you realize in front of the audience, oh, well, it's not on story at all. So why would the audience laugh at this? Right. But in rehearsal, things seem to be so funny. And there are things like in Rocky Horror, for instance, uh, I remember Daphne Rubin Vega going, uh, I'm lucky. You're lucky. We're all lucky. And the audience laughed. And I never laughed 
<laughs> I didn't know. I didn't even think of it was being. But then when she found it in the in the show, and the audience started to laugh, she started to go with it, and it, now it's like a it's a big laugh. I did it as that's just I like. Okay. Oh, <laughs> well, because it's one of the funniest. It, that that goes back to the familiarity thing, because yeah. that is one of the one funniest of the lines line. of the movement. Yeah. The funniest lines from the movie. Um, but one of the things that I, I found particularly hysterical, I was wondering how this came up in in Rocky Horror. Well, two things. So it blurs that line between you wonder was that staged by the director or was that choreographed by the choreographer. Um, Two things. It's, it's Janet, Janet humping the rail, basically, and then Dr. Scott's hand movements, which were then used in the song, and the whole company is doing. Like, what were the genesis of that? That, that, really cool. that, that was Leah. That Leo was walked Leah into the first with rehearsal this. audition. Audition. She had that. She had completely choreographed a thing in her mind with like, like <laughs> with an iron hand when she auditioned. And then I said to Chris, I think I said to Chris, I said, Chris, I could use that in the choreography and make it all be about her. Everybody, when they go, uh, they have to use the iron hand and do what she does because, and that's sort of how I I think the fence was both of us. I think the fence was you and her. It was us, but at one point, you, like, you weren't even talking about that moment. You, we were talking about the fence and whether we should, like, distress it or, like, is it too present in the thing? And you said at one point, like about a whole other moment, that fence is funny. I know that fence is funny. <laughs> and then, like, like two weeks later, we were working on that moment, and it wasn't working. And I was like, Charlie said that fence is funny. <laughs> and, she, and then we, Alice and I started talking. Why about have it. them crawl on the fence uh, in the time warp yeah, right. along the side and stuff? I was. It was most curious because you go to that show. One of the things, well, if you're a theater person, and one of the biggest curiosities. I mean, it's just one of those. Cinematic moments. It would be like doing the Donald O'Connor number. You want well, to see had, how they do make them. We, we played around with it a little and bit. We cut it at one point, and we tried. Funny. I tried to. I thought maybe it would be better if I cut out a verse, and I tried to marry it, and it was cut better. A minute. It was better the way it originally was. Yeah. But the funny, the thing that we knew about, and I spoke with Chris about this. I said, you know, I had we had auditioned Joan, and Joan, we we were all excited about Joan, and I said, you know, Joan is Joan. Jet tap dancing just doesn't make sense to me. But what if she played the guitar and we sort of did a stomp break around her? And Chris said, "Go for it." And so that was how that kind of came out. Wow. She sort of comes alive in a different kind of way once that guitar is on her. It's kind of course, that's her life. Yeah, that's amazing. Like she's at home base. Yeah, you know, that's amazing. So I love that. You use what they have. You gotta use what they have. And that was for for me the the really hard and interesting thing about Rocky was it's so familiar and do you completely start again and like not touch any of the familiar bases? You clearly don't do some kind of slavishly faithful rendering of the movie because the movie is like no. famously delightfully bad. You know, like, and like <laughs> I, do, are you? I think that was one of the smartest things that Chris didn't want to do the movie. Right. Because if, if he would have wanted to do the movie, I think we would have been, I think it's, I think it's if you're doing a revival, go for it. Do something different. Totally. Why do the original version, the cookie-cutter version of West Side Story? I have no interest in doing it. I mean, I know the choreography, and I'd do the choreography again in a minute, but I wouldn't do the set, I wouldn't do the costumes, and I wouldn't do the lighting. Find another environment and 
a way to, in which to tell the story, which is exactly what they did in Cabaret. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you're taking a familiar story, but you're finding, like they do with every opera, you're finding an interesting way to present it, a fresh way to present it. And I think that's what all revivals are. Why do one if you're not going to find a fresh way to present it? Just still on Rocky for a second. Yes. <laughs> and the, one of the most strange things I've ever experienced, which is actually letting the audience be funny, is such a strange experience. Oh like, and how much space do you leave for it? And like, there's performances that are like 15 minutes longer than other performances because the audience yeah. just wants to talk back. And and clearly that we we made a real decision that that, that show we were gonna like. I'd encourage the audience to let it be an interactive experience. I, I saw the show uh, last week. I hadn't seen it since opening because I was away. So I come back to see the show. And as I was going in, I noticed this group of kids that were there. And I said, I've seen them here before. Not only have I seen them there before, they've probably been there about 50 times. Right. Now they know the show well enough to yell things out to our specific actors who are playing the characters, and they're getting laughs on the actors' lines. So it's become, it's evolved into the Rocky Horror Show, like the Rocky Horror Picture mm -hmm. Show, for that small group of people. But, but the audience is enjoying that, and that's, that's part of what the Rocky phenomenon is all about. And that's what Charlie and I were wondering, how much did you encourage it? How, how did you plan for it? How did you work that in? The night I saw it, I, I can't, I've been trying to tell people this, but I can't remember the line. I can't remember the setup. It's a line right before Rocky says, I'm not talking to you. He's yelling at, at, at Rocky and Janet. They've just, I believe, they've just made love, and he's yelling at one. But anyway, someone from the audience yelled something that was so funny, and I thought Tom was going to lose it. And it was one of those moments, because usually in the show you have a whole bunch of people yelling the same thing. This was one solitary guy, I don't know if he made this lineup or whatever, and he was behind Tom. And Tom just turned around and said, right then, I wasn't talking to you. And then turned back. There with that Tom can talk to the audience, but can play else. with the audience, and no one else can, because the thing spins right. out of control as yeah. soon as anybody can well, get Dick does interact. too. Oh. Oh, well, it just went on. <laughs> that ain't... Well, it's Dick They're coming to see him talk. I did a reading with him once where he read the stage directions, so I, I've been down that road. I know what it is. Did you? Yeah, he was great, but he talked literally. He did a lecture on confident art for about 25 minutes before the reading of Once in a Lifetime, which is a long time. I was, we were really what about What about juggling different comedy styles in the same rehearsal room. I'm not talking mean? about in different shows. I mean, different, yeah, different, different actors, actors with different sensibilities style. and different two, kinds of with technique. Two, different actors with different technique, different comic styles, technique, and they're in the same show, you're directing them, and they're in the same scene. Which in some ways you must have. Well, I mean, Rocky is the most unbelievably eclectic cast from like Alice Rivers, I mean, who's like, only ever played like incredibly Lucy, serious I wrote, yeah. musical. On my paper, Dick Cavett, Leah, and Alice. Yeah. 
Three different worlds. I mean, yeah, what exactly. an enormously different world. That show, though, lends itself to that to having that play for you as opposed to against you. Whereas in the full Monty, it, they all had to be working class. You know, and so mm-hmm. it sort of is very clear from the start they're all working class and they all share the same sensibility, which is just sort of the way it goes. Rocky's sort of weird because you've got uh, you've got characters like Brad and Janet who are real sort of char- people, but then you've got people who are from outer space. So well, what, what can they be? They can be anything. They're from outer space. And I think... Metaphorically. And the no exceptions were hilarious. Oh, Rocky. Like the actors would say, well, what's happening here? And you'd have to say, okay, he, you were in love with him, but he killed your boyfriend. And he's here to do a medical experiment, but also to free the world sexually. But he's about to kill you, and he's got a ray gun. <laughs> and like that little button can control your arms and make you dance and sing. But then he's going to make you do a floor show that you're going to love, but it's going to be body control. I mean, it's, it's like, how do you and believe that? How do you justify, how do you justify that? that? I, I do think that, a couple things about like different styles. I think some of it's, like in Rocky, was very much about freeing some people and reining other people in. So that they're all sort of at the same wavelength. Um, and I think um, some of it is about the director and the choreographer being clear enough and insistent enough about what the world of the play is that people can all be converging on the same endpoint, even if they're coming from really different techniques. And I think if you don't, it, it's really, and it's hard to remember to do it on musicals because they're so technical and they're often so thin story-wise. But, but unless you take the time and really make sure that everybody is aiming for the same objective and you've been really clear about what the style universe of it is. And, and particularly because Rocky Horror is so thin. It was something that we worked very hard at, especially with the Phantoms, because that was something, something, that was sort of something Developed where the six, the six understudies who play the Phantoms, and in our production, are sort of Frankenfurners, minions. They do whatever is necessary to build the lab. To they're always present, but yet they're supposed to be invisible. But we didn't want them to always be invisible. So who were they? Were they aliens? Were they fans at the movie? The movie Did they turn in? in? You know, these were all questions that we had to go through, and we found a justification for them so they all could follow along and find a way to play a character from the beginning to the end. But it was tough. It was hard. What about and, like a, and the show is about individuality. Mm. I mean, that's what it preaches. Don't dream it, be it. So yet somewhere in there, they all have to be their own. It's not like having the chorus line of Rockettes up there. You know. Well, what about uh, Charlie? Which it's not. They're more. They're all in, in the same family of parents. They're all in the same strip. They're they all are. the same. Strip. And they're all the same. And they're all four years old. And they're all four years. Five. Some of them are older. Some of them are five. Uh oh. Um, is that a reminder or a problem? That was. Um, and and our actors were rather eclectic too, and came from different worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which wasn't easy. You know, it wasn't easy. It was fun, but it wasn't easy. Um, and I think we were lucky because Schultz created such a vivid and world, and that everyone who was in that show and everyone who saw the show also has um, 
you know, there's a resonance that happened. The minute you just mentioned the name Linus, everyone has an understanding of what that world view is. What was tricky with with that was that it's sort of pre-irony or at post-irony. I mean, you know, irony has no place in Peanuts. And so the ideal audience for that show is sort of the Nick at Night folks, you know, the people who really want to watch the Dick Van Dyke show five nights a week, you know, Mary. or Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> it's not about, uh, it's not a postmodern, ironic sensibility. It's, it's funny, it's damn funny because it's truthful, but it's not, um, they can't comment on it. And the tendency is to do sort of, to do Seinfeld, which just can't possibly work in that world, even though structurally that was that was the sort of cultural icon that most resembles your good man Charlie Brown is Seinfeld, because it's these little snippets. You know, Seinfeld is funny, and part of the reason it's funny is that you know, I, I, I once watched a few episodes in a row and counted the number of lines in each scene. It's never more than nine lines. I mean, it's the rare scene in Seinfeld that has more than nine exchanges. And Charlie Brown was the same way. Unless there was a big monologue, it's literally, or just a visual thing, and on to the next. And so for everyone to sort of get back to that place where, and it's scary for people to be, um, to be those kids again. It was hard for, I mean, it does, for one actor, actor. I mean, one actor. You don't have that much. You don't have that much. hard because they rely yeah. on yeah, well, I'm very little to deliver it in. But most musicals are that way. What about... I, 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 there's no story. There was no story, is the point. There's yeah, no right, large right. story to hang anything on. So you had to sort of jump in in that moment. and Everyone needed to be... It was like a basketball game, actually, more than anything I've yeah. ever done. Because pass, you, boom, you pass, pass, shoot, boom. pass, shoot. It's everything. All six of them had to always be in the same game and, and pass the thing And that's off. your job. Yes, that's right. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and pretty much what you were saying before, it's the choreographers and the director's job to get them to that same game and pass that ball. Right. In my experience, the, the, the most common place I've been in where actors aren't on the same page is some actors are coming from a place of, they have an internal barometer of, I have to be truthful. And some actors are coming from a much more technical comedy place of like, how do I get the laugh? Right. And how you get those two actors to inhabit the same world is really a task because they're both right. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. it's not funny unless it's truthful, and it's not funny unless it's technically skilled. And and, and they're both right. Something we talked about a lot during Millie was the difference between real and truth. I mean, you can be, tr- it has to be truthful, but it mustn't be real mm-hmm. in that particular world. And I think it was this, it's the same thing with Rocky Horror. It's got to be the same. It's the same thing with Charlie Brown. It's the same thing with a lot of musicals and comedies of, in, of a certain nature. It's not real, but it's always true. And I think that distinction is really Nothing could be more opposite of the scale than that applied to the Full Monty and the Rocky Horror Show. Because they're so completely at different right. ends of the right. scale. But yet, they work, and they work best when the actors who are playing the parts are true, are telling the truth. And they're not 
when the, those guys are telling the truth, it's funny and it's heartfelt. And when Tom Hewitt is absolutely believing everything he's saying, oh, Brad, do you have tattoos? He's believing it. It's funny to the audience, but, you know, only because he has invested the truth in it. I think. When Linus says, I think, you know, he's sucking his thumb and he pulls his thumb out and he says, I think I'm losing my flavor. He means it. It's funny. If yeah. he sent it up and it wasn't truthful, it wouldn't work. And if it were real, then you'd think he's psychotic. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, that's, that's a wonderful point. It's what you said about him getting, I want to get closer. Yeah. I want to, why did you move? I want to be him. closer. Right. Because but that four-year-old, so that's yeah. what he thought. That's what he thought. To say, oh, I, I, everything is great. Slightly related. <laughs> I'm very. Um, I also think there's a really interesting style thing for some actors between the like hyper investy ones and the throw it away ones, and like what moments need to get thrown away, and like just said, and what moments need some kind of burst of energy channeled through it. And who's got instincts about what and when they're right? And and a production which is all hypercharged is ex too exhausting. You sign out of it. And a, and a production which is all kind of thrown away and natural is not I, funny after a while. And like how such do you a great point. And it's so hard to know until you have that audience there to know really. I mean, we have hunches, right? And sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. But do you find? And I find this that. The actor, it's the rare actor who can live comfortably doing both things. It seems to me that most, most actors have a facility for, you know, for just dropping the thing. And others, their, their comedy is from that, that full commitment and that assistance and that sort of madness, you know, that you love. The Harry and Harris is that way, for instance, who I just had the pleasure of working with. I mean, she's completely, it's a madness. And there's, and, and she can throw the thing away, but even her throwaways, I think, have an intensity to them. Kristen Chenoweth is certainly that way, too. She's ruthless. You know, nothing is going to get between her and that laugh and that timing. Nothing. And she'll make it happen, you know. Uh, but her throwing something away still has a kind of plastic edge to it which is extremely satisfying, but you're very aware that she's throwing that away. Whereas, she knows she's going to get it, and she knows exactly how much she has to put out to get it. You know, right. She Definitely. knows. I mean, that is like, you, I can't think. I have, I have never worked with anyone in my life and yet who I have learned more about delivering a punchline than Catherine. She uh -huh. is it. Right. But then you work with someone like Alice and Janney, who just literally, it's, it's so understated. It's so easy. There's never any effort. You don't know where it comes from. And it's just, it's just so smooth and it's subtle and, and lands every time. What you so guys are describing, which is so beautiful, I mean, really, is you're all talking, it's obvious that it's the best comic performances are so technically finessed. It almost listening to you it almost sounds like you're describing athletes. And I was thinking of a pitcher and they know just how much to spin the ball, just how much to get that sinker. And each pitcher has his own style, but they know how to get that laugh. And like Jerry, you were talking mm -hmm. about Kathleen, Michael, you were talking about Allison. 
they know how to pitch that. I think there's. I, I think I totally agree with what you're describing, and I think that there's a real danger in that, especially deep into a run, because I think productions and 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 especially comic actors can get hooked on the laugh, like they get addicted to it, and that starts the the the, the rhythm and the story you're starting to tell is like everything else set up punchline, everything else set up punchline, and deep in a run. It, I find a lot of what I end up saying is reminding people of story, which is not the funny stuff. Right. Because true. the funny stuff will always stay the vivid. Truth. But, the but truth. And where the, like, where the true it's things not that are not funny in a right. scene. You know, you're asking for the laugh, not for the cup of tea. You know, it's that thing, right? What about the, there's a theory, or let's say the, the process of the, the jokes start to shift. Now, there'll be things that will always be funny. In your production, uh-huh. always, you'll always land. If we can use that word, do, first of all, landing a joke is that an offensive term to anybody yeah. in this room? That's but it is. Some, it is often offensive, I think, to, to some actors of landing a joke. So now you, there are some jokes that will land. Do you find that in productions that the, that the emphasis of where the joke lands shifts, and what do you do about that, or does, or how do you prepare? Do you know, uh, John John Connolly. In Fulmonte is another brilliant, um, I think, actor because he has some of the most funny and heartfelt moments, heartfelt funny moments for the audience that are often at his character's expense. And the only way he can t- he can continue to do that is to be to play the truth of it, the truth of the situation, out of work. Beer and pretzels. I live in Buffalo. That's the only way he can get it. And what's funny about it is that I often see the show, and it's and it it travels. The laugh travels with John, but it's never offensive to me, or to, I'm sure not to Jack, because he is so damn spot on about who he is, his character, and he's playing it so truthfully that you believe it. And so some nights, one night they get it here, or one night they get it there. But it doesn't matter because you watch him from the beginning of the show to the end, and you go, "I love this guy. I love this guy." You respond. Yeah, I, I was going to say what Michael. I find sometimes, Michael, <laughs> in, a, in, a, uh, in a run, is that what what you find is um, this wasn't so much so true for Sideman so much. It happened a little bit. But even in something that didn't run very long, like Triumph of Love, I remember sort of the last couple weeks of that run, uh, it was only like five months, but um, they, it, we knew we were closing, and I just thought, you know, these people have been so good. I was such a taskmaster about, about the timing and the specificity of things. And what happened organically is that sometimes what used to be the punchline became the setup for another reaction, which got an even bigger laugh. And often, it was fine, because the story beats were where they needed to be, and it didn't violate anything intrinsically you know, about character or story or, or theme or whatever. It, it, it worked fine. But occasionally, it would sort of start sending the thing askew. And I just remember, by the end of that run, I just sort of let them go. I wasn't, I, I, just to see, it was almost like an experiment, just to see. How, how far they would take it. And then you have people like F. Murray Abraham who would just take, and Kevin Chamberlain. I remember they had a really funny little scene in, in the second act. And they went 
so far, they started, I don't, I don't even know how to even describe what was happening between them. But I laughed, the audience loved it, and at that point, even though it was sort of taking us down a kind of dangerous road, I just thought, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> and it was it was Yes, that, that was what the fuck. What the fuck. <laughs> you know, so it was, I enjoyed it, because there was less riding on it, it didn't need to sort of fulfill itself anymore. Let me start, one quick one. A funny line, a funny, funny joke, one. something that... Something that makes you laugh all the time. Something you've seen in a show. This is like you know, like what Barbara Walters would ask. <laughs> what do you live? If you could what, be a tree. What, if you could be a tree, what kind of tree would you be? You got a funny one-liner? No. A funny one-liner. Babushka. Whenever anybody says the word. That's babushka, what I mean. I babushka. You mean it? Do you mean it? Babushka. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's, there's a K in it. Is there's a K in it. Shmata's pretty funny, too. Babushka. See, but now we're going to have to learn how to look these up and spell them Bushka. right. Are we, have we finished? Are we over? <laughs> Babushka now. No, 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 no. I have a couple of questions. Um, what's the funny line that I say to my dancers? But Babushka is right. I usually, you know what makes me laugh? When, right. when I'm getting ready to do a cleanup rehearsal, I say, okay, come on, we're getting out the Hoover. <laughs> right. And I mean it. I mean, and like, you mean <laughs> suck it up the shit. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's time to clean the show. Um, I, you, you asked a question earlier about revivals or old comic material versus new. Yeah. I was uh, I did a production of a play called A Thousand's Cheer, which mm. was from the 30s. That was uh, Moss Hart, a drama yeah, yeah. And that was, there, was, there were sketches and there were songs, and mostly the sketches were funny and the songs mostly less. Um, right, right. But, intentionally. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. More serious music and more funny um, scenes. And the scenes were so confusing to rehearse. Not only were there like lots of references all the time to topical humor from the 30s, but you had no idea what they were talking about. Just like factually, like yeah, what yeah, are yeah, they yeah. saying? But also, it was stage directionless, and a lot of it was clearly physical comedy. And there was a sort of archaeology job involved there, like where there would be line, 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 and then the stage direction would be business. Think like. What business? And like clearly, like big laugh for you know uh-huh. absolutely somebody who created whatever this business was. But then like trying to like sort of work back toward you know what could this possibly have been on its feet? Uh, and and a lot of times we just probably don't care. We'll just make it up for ourselves because it was just you couldn't get back there. It's Especially so in those confidence scripts, the, the pillow business, whatever that was. Exactly. And all the like sort of the the, the Kaufman and, and Hart kind of more produced plays, somehow through the years, the, the, the production scripts have have filled out the, the, all the sort of business with production history, but because that really was not revived after the 30s, like, nobody ever wrote down what it was, and it wasn't like there weren't the assistant directors from the original production didn't remount it 10 years later and kind of, you know, fill out what all... What about Anne? Did Anne know any of those secrets? Was she around much? Um, Anne wasn't around on... That because it, there was there was no covenant involved in that. Oh right, so right. Moss Hart did that. Uh, Sorry, I went to Kitty, a, Kitty, Kitty was there. Kitty was around, um, and had seen it a lot, but but remembered the music much more than the sketches actually. Um, right. We um, what she, was talking to Marge Champion uh, the other day, and she was the same exact thing, and she had a friend over and who had worked with Bert Lahr, and they were talking about those periods and scripts like that, and they would just say. Bert does the tongue bit, right? Uh-huh. And everybody now is like, "Well, what, what the hell was the tongue bit?" But you know, that was the same thing, though. 
I remember doing whenever I've, whenever I've done Moliere or Marivaux, but both of those are so out of that commedia tradition, and you know that there's lots in there, and you it certain things are set up, and even if it doesn't say business, you know that something is intended to. to well, let's visit that a minute if we could, because we talked a lot about musical comedy, but let's talk for a minute about since we've got the two directors here. Jerry left, by the way, for purposes of the tape. Jerry had to go. Um, suddenly we're going to see Jerry's voice not on the transcript. He flew out in a... Wow. <laughs> we just infuriated him. Um, what about uh, di- directing different comic styles, a musical comedy versus a Moliere versus a... So what about a musical comedy as opposed to comedy? What if we just... Let's start there. A comic play. A, music, a, a comic... Comic play and musical comics. What are the differences? Are there differences? What do you feel well, about them? Uh, <clears throat> well, in most musical plays, they don't have to sing and dance. <laughs> <laughs> That's a difference that I recognized. <laughs> That's good. Um, <laughs> but in the, in the musical play, I think one of the, um, I would say this, honestly. You know, Jerry's very sweet to say he's there just to serve the director's vision. But I do feel like one year, the difference between a play and a musical, one of the huge differences is the number of collaborators on a musical. So when, when I'm directing a play, I feel much more that it's really about, it literally is about my take on the play and trying to get you know, the designers to create a physical life that, that mirrors that take and to just get the actors to go with me on this journey. And it seems like it's a much, it's a much more contained experience. So it's really, the rehearsals are so much about me and the actors, just us creating this world and fulfilling the, the journey of the characters, whether it's a comedy or a drama. And I think that you have to do both sort of the same way anyway, really. It's just that it's certain chops that are needed in comedy that you don't always need for drama. But um, with a musical, you've got, you know, you've got the composer, the lyricist, the book writer, if they're not the same people. You've got your choreographer, you've got a music director, you've got the orchestrator, you've got the dance arranger, you've got the assistant choreographer. And musicals, because of the nature of the expense, more often than not, you're dealing with producers as well who are going to be putting money into it. So suddenly, the the room is populated with um, more people with agendas of their own. And the job of the director becomes, so, you know, your skills as a diplomat are are even more taxed than usual. You start having to negotiate um, between so many people and who are experts in their field, too, so you have to honor that, which is a thrill and a privilege to be able to work with them. But by the same token, I feel like you're, the director is less sort of in charge of every single beat. It's just, it's not possible. You'd have to rehearse for six months to sort of be able to 
go through every mention. I, 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 this is Chris. I endorse Michael's comment completely. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and like in a musical, there is something. It's, it's. I would sometimes think of it as like being a general. Like you can't fight all the battle, but you can go. You guys take that flank. Uh-huh. You guys take that flank, and I'll supervise the middle. You know, like there's a there's a way in which you're right. Sending people out to do things that are going to be their expertise as opposed to right. yours, and because you're, you're the director, you get to say, you know, yes or no, or change yeah. that. I mean, you yeah. do have, uh, you know, the buck has to stop somewhere, and it should. You know, I mean, that's appropriate, but it's a different kind of process. I also think the casting process is quite different for me on a comedy play versus a musical, because in a in a straight play. You are casting whoever you can find who you think is best for that role in a pretty singular way. And because in a musical you're caring about can they sing, can they dance, can they act, there's always casting trade-offs of like, Mm. is this a score that we have to serve uh, musically? How much are we serving the choreographer? Are we giving people who can really dance? How much are the is, uh, how important are the book scenes? Do we really need people who have acting chops? And those kind of trade offs, you just you, you don't have the same way in a, right. in a play, straight play. Right. That is the, that's the great. A, that's really dead on because it's a negotiation. That is negotiation. And and wait, if you're lucky, you get everyone who can do everything. Right. As we know, both of them are busy. <laughs> <laughs> both of them all the time. <laughs> yeah, they, they both got they both got development deals. Yeah. Or, <laughs> right. or whatever. You know, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to find people. I'm working on um, a musical right now with kids, and that has been really interesting because uh, they don't have that the same level of skill is sort of not expected. So suddenly, and because they're so young, they're, this is like their, probably their third or fourth thing they've done, maybe their first professional thing, and so you're, I'm getting them really at a great moment where um, where I'll be able to. I, they won't have bad habits that need breaking. They're just like fresh and open, and they also haven't. They don't have careers yet that are getting in the way. So they're choosing to do a play, with song, you know, a musical. They're choosing to do that, and they want to be there, and that's really a different ball game than what than what the casting thing has become. It's really it's really hard to cast things anymore. Well the strike, that'll really <laughs> the big the strike, strike is like is it's is like a pot of gold that everyone is waiting I for know. In, in theater casting. It'll be interesting to see if it pans out that way. Yeah. We'll see. Charlie had an interesting question the other day. Uh, I don't know if you were gonna ask or not, but um it goes to the, 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 the collaboration between a director and a comic play, a playwright on a comedy. Um, I was made me think of, of you, Chris, because of your work with Paul Rudnick, who I, I think is just got to be one of the funniest so playwrights. Funny. Just so funny. What do you just brilliant? Um, and that is, what if a moment doesn't work? Is it? How do you negotiate? Is it a problem with the writing? Is it a problem with the direction? Has there ever been tension like that? And then how do you negotiate your way around that with the writer? It's so, it's like as individual as marriages are, in my experience. With Paul, I've sort of said a variation of this. Right. I, I, I find, just cut it. <laughs> I am usually having to take responsibility actively and say, don't cut yet. I think this is just, we haven't found it yet. 
a lot because he's really ruthless with his own stuff. There's certainly writers who, no matter what, how many ways you try to rehearsal, can't see it if it's not on the page, and you have to shout or scream or just take the page out of the script and throw it away, you know, then, then, then like they will always be the production's fault. And, the, and I think most writers fall somewhere in between and then it's negotiating how, who's going to take responsibility for what, how much are you up in the writer's face about the writing and really like, you know, in the sort of details of what that text is, how much are you allowing them into the rehearsal process to talk to you about like, should they cross the line earlier? Uh, certainly questions about should you allow that writer to talk to the actors? Um, you know, and of course the like common answer is no. And so for me, sometimes the answer is yes. I mean, it's, there's times when like they clearly know what that moment is, and I don't. <laughs> Rather than having them whisper in my ear and me saying, "I was like, yeah, what do you think? What is it?" And and for me, a lot too is the longer you work with the writer, for me, the lower the boundaries get uh, because I trust them more and more. So for Paul, I would say we're up in each other's business all the time. And a writer who I've just started to work with, I would never say you could talk to an actor. It would be, that would be so scary for me until I know that they have a vocabulary that's going to help the actor and not hurt. Um, I agree. <laughs> it is. It's different in each case. I really. It, it's really well put. Have you ever been in a situation? This just really occurred to me. Uh, then how about that one? Oh, well, yeah, just out of curiosity. Yeah. So in a musical, in a musical, you've got your choreographer, you've got your designers, you've got yes. your conductor, you've got you, you've got your actor, and something, and it's whatever the moment is, the musical moment that's happening, it's not working. I mean, the choreographer. Have you ever been in a situation where all of you at the same time go, ah, it is her, it is her, it is my direction, it is. Have you ever been there where it just? All of you actually see the on problem thoroughly the modern Millie escape escape uh, on Millie when um, early on in previous at La Jolla we did have one of those moments and we were all to blame. It was sort of amazing. We all you know in, it was in one particular moment and we we had this meeting. It's like why is this working and and we realized well that I blew it. The lyrics didn't work. The music didn't work. The choreography didn't work. The lighting didn't work. The set didn't work. The costume was wrong. Absolutely, we all contributed to it being a complete disaster. That one moment, it was really amazing. We just we went. It must have been we thrilling. Took, it was well. It was wonderful because it wasn't my fault. Yeah, you know what I mean. Or everybody was like a bonding moment. Well, it was a bonding moment. We were like, wow, look at how we all contributed to make. A mess right there. Right. So that was kind of fun. But um, yeah, I, you know, I think often, you know, we the the creative team can pretty much tell when something's not working. You know, if you just examine it, you have the if you have the luxury to look at it a few times, pretty much everyone can come up with the same uh, same problem. The solutions are what change so much. Everyone has a very different solution to the problem. But identifying what the problem is is not usually too hard. <laughs> yeah, and and that's when that's when you've got you really hope that you have producers who trust you who won't come in and say, "I think it should be this. You should do this, this, this," because you know, really, in the best of all worlds, you're finding it together, and you've got actors. I think more often, more and more, I'm learning that um, the actors know 
huge amount about what is wrong and how to fix it. And, if, you know, the, and I, I run a sort of notoriously open kind of rehearsal where sort of anything goes probably to a fault. You know, I, I let everyone sort of talk a lot. And, you know, I just, I, my theory is, you know, I don't care. You know, a good idea is gold, and I don't care where it comes from. I have no ego in that way. I, don't, I really don't care. Um, but uh, more and more I find that actors in, living in it have so much... Uh, more insight about the moment. And too often, I think they're not included in those conversations when you're doing new work, especially in musical, because there are those big, you know, there's big powwows after every rehearsal, after every preview, where you get together and figure out what you're going to do, what's, the, you know, what's triage, what can wait, you know, um, what the, where the big bleeders are. And, if, and I found that by really introducing the actors into that conversation, sometimes incredibly great things will happen. And I said, well, if I just had this moment, and then suddenly they have a little moment, it's one line maybe, and then suddenly it turns the whole scene around. Or, you know, they'll come up with a bit of business that gets the laugh that you need. You didn't know you needed a laugh there. You knew this little stretch, something was missing, and what it was was literally a laugh. And then they do a bit of business, the laugh is there, and suddenly the whole thing is buoyant in a way that you might not have. Totally. I have sort of a parallel experience. The way that a session, note session with actors can really solve problems. Yeah. And the way that a production meeting, not the parallel afterwards with the creators, but the way that like the designers who sit there in the room endlessly and watch the thing, it's like, you know, the lighting designer's like, well, why is that line Right. Well, I know. Yes. Okay. So like, actually, the people they have given, they know. Some and actually, what was funny was like sometimes it's even the the follow spot operator. You know, it's like <laughs> I remember Joe Papp when I was working, I was assisting on Romance and Hard Times. He literally he would ask, you know, he would ask the custodians who are sweeping out the theater. What did you think? And you know, I remember, and the guy says, "Oh, the top of two doesn't work." Uh, <laughs> it's true. It's there. It's true. Absolutely true. You got you a line before you go. The top of two doesn't work. That was, that was great. You just had a good one. <laughs> That's a good way to end. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.